Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. Mandy Patinkin is many things. He's a celebrated actor known to many for his role as Saul Berenson in the long-running Showtime series Homeland. He's a world-class singer and He's a passionate activist for progressive causes. I sat down with him this week to talk about his life and career, the issues he cares about, and the campaign that will end Tuesday for which he is energetically organizing voter turnout. When that Republican convention was over on Thursday night, I just sat and watched it. I took it in, and I woke up the next morning energized like I'd never been energized in my Absolutely. life. I spoke to Gideon, my son. I spoke to everyone and we know, and I said, let's get going. We called every organization. We said, let's get out every drop of information we can. Let's tell people what they can do. Nobody should be immobilized. Everybody should have something to do. There are ways to write letters. We got 80 already printed out and many more coming. There are ways to get out and vote early. You can do that. There are ways. Yes, he's absolutely right. I mean, you absolutely have so many options. If you don't want to talk to somebody on the phone, write a letter. If you don't like writing, you can your wife in the t- middle of do a phone call. Honey, I'm saying something very important. Sorry, go ahead. And you know what? It feels really good. You can have letter writing parties, phone banking parties. The thing is that this is being a participant in your democracy. If you give a shit about democracy, you have no excuse not to participate in saving the shit out of it. That was actor Mandy Patinkin and his wife, Catherine Grody, who've been on a kind of social media tear lately, urging people to vote in Tuesday's election with a uh, slew of entertaining videos that have gone viral. I urge you to, to go on, on uh, to Twitter and find them. Uh, Mandy Patinkin, it's it's good to see you. Good to uh, see you, David. Thanks for having me. Oh, David, I just saw you tip your head down a little bit. And, yes, and I wore this for you. You're my, wearing my, a White Sox head. You're not just me, David, but my dad. <laughs> I know, I know about dad. this. I'm going to ask you about this. Okay, yeah. good, good, good. It's not so. It's it's not just pandering, though. I okay, good, it's, good. Uh, I don't yeah. even if it is pandering, it makes me happy. <laughs> Brings my father into the room. <laughs> We'll we'll talk about that. But Great. before we do, just tell me um, tell me how this all came about. Why did you decide to go on this so, sort of social media blitzkrieg here? Well, I knew nothing about social media until 2015 when I went. Uh, we were filming Homeland in uh, Berlin, uh, and I think it was the fifth season. I'm not sure. I'm pretty sure. And it was right at the time, uh, the very first episode was... Uh, took place in a Syrian refugee camp. And it was at the exact moment that 125,000 refugees were trying to get across the Balkan route uh, to get to Germany uh, for sanctuary. And I looked at these photographs in the newspaper as I just arrived in Berlin and was starting to shoot that day in, in the fictional world of homeland. And the real world was passing in front of my eyes. I thought those are my ancestors. That's my grandparents. Yeah. And, and those kids are me. And, uh, and, and my unborn children. And uh, and I just, oh my God, I have to be with them. And I had six months of, of shooting to do. And the minute I finished that last shot, I got on the plane and I went to, um, I went to Lesbos, Greece with the International Rescue Committee to start uh, 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 paying attention and, and listening uh, to the needs of refugees. And at that time, they said I should go on social media. So I said, okay. And they helped me out with it. And I didn't know how to upload or download or inload or outload. And, uh, and so we grew it and we did it all toward, you know, uh, informing people about the refugee crisis and continue to do that. And so Gideon 
was walking down the road with us, my son, my young son, Gideon, he was quarantining, but we could take walks on the road, uh, you know, when he came back to be with us. And, um, and we, it was our anniversary uh, the day before, so it had to be April 17th. And we're walking down the road, and we stop in front of the Yellow Forsythia, and, and he takes out his cell phone, which he often does because he likes to record family moments, and he says, uh, so, um, you know, what's going on? And, and somehow we say, uh, it was our anniversary, and then Catherine goes, and we had a fight. We had a big fight. And then we talk about the fight and how we love each other and everything. And he finishes it, and he comes to us a day or so later, and he says, that was really kind of sweet. And I, can I put it on your social media? I said, well, I don't know how to do it. He said, no, I can figure it out. And I said, yeah, go ahead, put it on there. Okay. And his thinking was at the time to anything we can do maybe to grow the numbers to bring more eyeballs to the refugee crisis. And I said, sure. And so he puts it on and it kind of goes through the roof. Everybody loves this story of uh, Catherine and I talking about having a fight on our anniversary. And then he continues filming us. Uh, you know, we don't even know he's filming us half the time. He's got a, he's got a camera on one of <laughs> these. dangerous. Tripods. Yeah, at the dinner table. And, and, and we just made a deal. We said, listen, uh, nothing goes on without mom and me saying okay. And, and he starts putting it out there. And, and it catches, and people are enjoying it. And it's just family at home. And, and, then, um, and then down the road, George Floyd um, mm -hmm. was killed. And we felt it was inappropriate to have the amusing family videos. So we began posting, uh, with the help of our children, Isaac and Gideon, organizations that needed attention and fundraising uh, to heighten uh, awareness of, uh, of systemic racism in our country and maybe trying to turn that around. From the moment that the social media started having success, all three of us, Catherine Gideon and myself, were aware that, my God, if this is bringing eyeballs to our social media, if we can keep growing these eyeballs, we've got the election coming in September and October, you know, the crunch months, and we could start working to get people out to vote. So we just kept doing whatever Gideon and his good friend Ewan Wright, who's our director uh, for the videos, you know, would, would suggest and, and put it out there. And then, and then, as, as, um, then we started mixing back in the family videos, and, and it just kept growing. And then we began the political awareness stuff and the get out the vote. And that's, that's the story of it. You know, what's interesting to me is that social media can be a, a force for good, and it could be a really, really... Uh, negative force and there's a lot of ugliness uh, on social media and i love the uh, i love the video you guys did where you start off with the, your apocalyptic read of a what yeah. essentially a negative ad yeah. uh and 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 you and and catherine comes in and interrupts you and says okay. hey too much and you too much. and you tone it down and of course the the gag at the end is that she gets all worked up. Right. But but it, it seemed to me to have a larger message, which is, I mean, you, you seem to be appealing to the better angels of people's nature rather than trying to uh, to uh, rile them up in anger. Is that fair? Well, we're not trying to do anything. We are literally just behaving as <laughs> Catherine and Mandy and yeah. Gideon uh, as many wise children in their family have watched us and feel that he has had a desire to share aspects of us with other people, whether it's the absurd aspect or the heartfelt aspect. So it is really through the eyes of our children mm -hmm. that, um, that you are seeing what they see and what they choose to see. And as you can hear in the family videos, it's, it's really Gideon's question. He he just very interestingly has chosen to be off camera, sort of like that 50s TV show with the millionaire yeah. who gives you the check at the beginning and you never yes. see him and wonder who he is. And, and yet you hear his voice and you hear his, um, I guess a friend of ours said something that touched Catherine and I deeply. They said, you know why it's so wonderful? Because you feel the love. And I think you feel the love he meant through Gideon uh, for, yeah. for his... And my God, uh, you know, all of us as parents, I don't think there's anything we wish for more than our kids want to be with us for just yeah. even a second. Let and that actually has that. been a gift. If you are lucky enough to be fortunate going into this pandemic, uh, then one of the benefits is that we've spent six weeks with our uh, son and his fiance, and we've spent time with, you know, uh, our other son and his family. Um, 
together in long periods of time that we never would have had. Exactly. Uh, but for this, but in, but you know, the thing that strikes me about your these videos are that there is an idealism and sweetness to them that is powerful in in times that are so riven by anger and uh, and you know, I think they that is part of the appeal. Uh, well, did you know who Mark Harrington was? Yes, yeah, sure. Mark was one of my closest friends. We had a father's group that I began. Uh, right after he finished one of the Olympics, our kids were all in kindergarten together. Yeah, and um, and Mark uh, got um, melanoma, and uh, he his son and my son are best friends, oldest friends, and 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 he kept himself alive until Catherine and I got back from wherever we were traveling. We came to his bedside, and his nurse gave him a spoonful of morphine, and he sat up in bed. And he got all his strength together, and he looked at these two cuckoo friends of his, and he looked at us and knew us well, and he said these words, have fun. Mm -hmm. And they are easily said and hard to achieve. Yeah. And so those are, those are the big words pasted everywhere in our hearts <laughs> and minds in our yeah. family. And, and we can get very heavy and very serious, and Catherine is incredibly knowledgeable and very political, and certainly the teacher in our family. Um, but Gideon has adopted, uh, Gideon, you know, we're all entertainers at the end of the day, and, and Gideon is, is maybe one of the most serious in the family about causes and needs of, of, of being an activist to bring attention to those who need attention paid. Uh, and yet he is ruthless about having fun. If you wake up in the morning and he says, how you doing, Mom? How you doing? Uh, I'm okay. okay. What do you mean you're okay? What do you mean just okay? You're alive. You woke up. It's a beautiful day. Come on. He, he has no patience for just being, uh, I'm okay. You know, <laughs> so. That can probably grow old in quarantine, too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, he has his rough days, too. Clearly, uh, all of us that try to do that, and especially entertainers. Why do we entertain? I think we're entertaining because we're trying to get ourselves out of the black hole. We're trying to wake ourselves up. I want to talk to you about that in a minute. Let me just finish up on the sure. on, on these videos because um, there are others and your words that I've seen elsewhere uh, that were interesting to me because they seem to be a message to young people, a message to the left, about this election. You're a supporter of Joe Biden's and you've yes. spoken about his decency and uh, and his character and how important that is. And your message seems to be don't make the perfect the enemy of the good. Tell me about right. that. A long time ago, I was shooting the movie Yentl. I was just getting ready to. And, you know, this wonderful writer named Larry McMurtry. So he yeah, was a mutual friend of, of a friend of ours. Our kids were little. He came over for dinner. And I'd been working with Barbara Streisand for quite a while on trying to get the script the way she'd like it and doing my research and sharing it with her. And I think she had, I thought I heard 23 different versions of the script, or <laughs> it's either 13 or 23. I think it's like 23. And, and Larry, I knew that I was about to go to Europe to begin filming. And he said, well, you know, I wrote one of those scripts. Oh, I said, I didn't know that. He said, yeah, you know, the thing about her, I said, what, Larry? And, and, and he said, you know, she's, She's a perfectionist, and uh, and she just can't get it through her head that that's the only thing in life you can't achieve. <laughs> and I've spent the rest of my life trying to remember those words because because you've been you've been uh, you you know you've been accused of that fairly uh, accused. in your time you know every, uh, earlier in your career particularly people said oh he's a handful you know he's yeah. a, a perfectionist that's what yeah. they would say and it would. Uh, so you've been fighting that war all your life. And I'll fight it to the, to the, to the end of my last breath because, <laughs> you know, I, I think that, and that comes from insecurity, but I think that insecurity and that desire to try to do your best is defined and labeled as being a perfectionist. But So it, it's the double-edged sword. It also makes you strive course, to do the yeah. best you can, yeah. and it also is costly. So, yeah. And so I, I trying, I'm trying to say to all of us, 
as as Obama said so beautifully, I think in Pennsylvania, yeah. uh, the uh, you know the days are getting washed. Yeah. But just a few days ago, yes. that you know we moved it forward. We do the best we can. We can't. We didn't get it all right, but we yeah. we get we got it better. And that's that's all you can do. And my teacher always said to me, just do the best you can. And that became my mantra. You know that it, whatever the day was like whether family or work, I just had to say to myself, Mandy, you, you did the best you can. Now yeah. let it go. And letting it go is like climbing Everest at times. But yeah. if you don't let it go, you can you can end up with a zero-sum game. Yeah. No, I uh, trust me. I First of all, I, sh- I share that quality with you. But secondly, um, you know, democracy is imperfect because people are imperfect. And right. uh, we never get it exactly right. We just try and move in the right direction. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I think it's an important message. Uh, uh, you, you talked earlier about your family's experience and how much that informs your passion about, uh, about uh, refugees uh, and uh, about how we treat refugees. But tell me about your family. And, and, and they came from Eastern Europe, I guess, during the pogroms. Is that... Yes, they did. Uh, they came from Eastern Europe, uh, and I thought originally that uh, it was um, my my grandpa Max came. I thought in 1905. He actually came after his brother came here, and his brother he came to be with his brother. And then his brother went back to Eastern Europe and ended up being killed in a robbery, and the whole family was killed. Mm. But I'd recently learned that. Um, a lot of the family was lost in the Holocaust. And uh, I hadn't been aware of that because that was hidden from many people in our family for a long time. And we always thought that, well, not uh, not that many Patinkins were lost in the Holocaust, but it, it's not Why the case. was it hidden? I think people are afraid of the truth. I think they're afraid in the same way that when my father got pancreatic cancer, the doctors and my mother, because of the previous illness my father had, said, don't tell daddy he has cancer. They're worried he'd hurt himself or take his life or not want to be able to deal with it. And so they told this 17, 18-year-old Mandy, you know, we're going to tell daddy he has hepatitis. So you teach, you know, you, you teach that the lie is better than the truth. And that's wrong. It's profoundly wrong. It informed the rest of my entire life so that the word truth has become the beacon of my existence to a fault so that if I don't feel that I'm being truthful literally with you or to my public or to the work or to my children that I don't deserve to exist now that's not fair either you know sometimes as my dad said when my mom uh, was in the hospital for something and we were little and he was taking us over to have lunch. He said, we're going to tell mom we had uh, lunch. I said, but daddy, we didn't have lunch. He said, it's, I know, I know, I know, but mom will worry if I didn't give you lunch. So it's called a white lie. I said, what? He said, it's a white lie. <laughs> and so, uh, and then, and then I just, as a kid at 18, I was robbed of being honest with my father at the end. He was no dummy. He knew that he did the research on hepatitis in 30 seconds, and he knew this wasn't what was going on. Yeah. And so there I was wanting to finally calm down my crazy kid energy and, and just be there for him to just talk about whatever he needed. You were close, you and, and, and your dad. Well, I, I was as close as, as I could be. First of all, I was pretty manic as a kid and pretty, you know, like, you know, I remember I have one piece of tape recording from my dad, which I love hearing his voice. And it's so ironic what he's saying. I'm I'm saying something at the table and he goes, Mandy, what are you doing? (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, And it's exactly like that. And I just went and but every day you see my dad, uh, my dad had he he really. He did the impossible. He broke his neck when he dove into Lake Michigan as, as a 20-year-old. And then in 42, he was in uh, San Antonio, Texas, in the Army and working in the pharmacy. He was made a pharmacist mate. And he had these headaches. And it was the spinal tube from the neck break that was closing and keeping the spinal fluid from coming to his brain. So he had to have an operation where they had to put in a little metal tube to bring the spinal fluid to the brain. And they called his mom and dad, Grandpa Max and Grandma Celia, 
and said he may not make it. It's a 50%. It was a, mm. a new operation. Today, it would be nothing. And indeed, they touched the wrong thing, and he was paralyzed for three years. So he was a right-handed guy, and he had to learn how to write with his left and um, how to walk again. So he had a note in it written down that he carried with him whenever he drove or in the car because he couldn't walk a straight line if a cop asked him to walk a straight line. He would stumble. I'd always be on his left side because he would stumble while we're walking. And... Um, but he, he, the thing that killed him the most was he loved baseball. And uh, we went to Comiskey Park every Saturday, every Shabbos after the synagogue. We were in synagogue and High Park Boulevard, Congregation Road, Fazetic, right yeah. near where Obama lives. Yes. And, uh, and, and we went uh, right from there to Comiskey Park every Saturday and, uh, and watched the ball game. And what killed my dad more than anything was he couldn't play catch with me because he he learned how to write and walk with the opposite uh, write with the opposite hand walk okay talk okay but he couldn't control the speed of that ball and he was worried he was going to hurt me and the other irony was so we had this love of uh you know I, I had the love of watching him love baseball yeah and um and i i i forgot where i was going but uh go ahead I, no, that's okay. Yeah, baseball. My father was an immigrant, and the, I think he, he came from Eastern Europe as well. He learned how to play baseball, I think, before he learned how to speak English. Mm -hmm. And uh, actually became quite a good baseball player, and we would spend every weekend at the ballpark. And I still think about it when I go to ball games, And when I yeah, take yeah. my own kids, it, it is really a a connection a, a line of connection that it's so similar to politics what goes around that baseball dinner table is what goes around the political baseball dinner table too and you inherit your parental beliefs i believe and it's a very interesting journey if you can root for your own team somewhere else along the line or not even be interested in maybe baseball but football or basketball or or some other sport we're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now, back to the show. Politics was not a big thing in your... I read somewhere your folks didn't even vote. Uh, I, well... I'm sure they voted, but I didn't know about it because mm -hmm. I never heard about it. Um, their life was the synagogue, and that's all I ever heard was sisterhood and men's club. Yeah. So when I met Catherine and she said, well, were your parents Republicans or Democrats? I said, I don't know. I think they were sisterhood and men's club is all <laughs> I know they were. Um, I do know that they did have, I, when I trace it back, there was activity because Uncle Schmully, my dad's younger brother, he was more politically active, um, and and he was, uh, he ran, uh, like you, he ran Abner Mikva's first oh, campaign, right? I believe, yeah. Oh, wow. And, uh, and so we were at those events for Abner Mikva, which means we were Democrats. Yes, <laughs> so. uh, those, were, those were historic campaigns. He took on the Democratic machine there and got, yes, him, he did. Yeah, got so. himself elected. How, so you, you spent a lot of time in synagogue and in, in uh, Hebrew school and religious school yeah. when you, and faith was very much a part of your, your life. How did that impact on you and do you still consider yourself a person of faith not only i'm i'm very faithful i don't keep kosher i i don't need to follow the rules that are are dictated i make up my own rules i say <laughs> prayers and a meditation every day they include hebrew player prayers uh hebrew player prayers uh shakespeare's words uh words of friends family and hopes and dreams of my own that i've made up but i can give you a perfect example of how However you want to label this act, I, I give my dog uh, her, her food in the morning, two cups of, of her kibble. And, and I, I put it down, and she sits there and waits for me to say, okay. And, uh, and before she do it, I'm moving my lips, and I'm saying the Misha Bayrock, which is the <laughs> healing prayer, because she has an, an illness that, she's, that we're treating her for, and hopefully she'll get rid of it. I say the Misha Bayrock. 
and then I I say then I say the bracha to break the bread and begin eating, and she and she now knows that when my lips start moving, the okay is coming, and I say okay. So I find it hilarious that I'm doing this, but I'm I I realize, but Mandy, you know I I find religion since the beginning of time an extraordinary. Uh, Alan Arkin once said to me, he thought uh, he thought. God invented man, I think is what he said. I thought it, man invented religion and God. And then he corrected me, he thought it was the other way around. I I think it's inc- an incredible thing to have come up with, to answer the question of existence, the stars, the universe, and, and how come you're not here forever, and, and a tree and a mountain is. Um, I'm so grateful for loved ones and people I've never met from the beginning of time, that it guides them through the universe. For me, it is fun. It is a comfort. The prayers that I heard when I was a kid, the prayers that I make up as an adult, um, you know, just a simple thing, like in Judaism, there's one day a year where there's a Yisker service on Yom Kippur, and you're supposed to say the names of all your loved ones. Well, I do this every day. Everyone who I knew, some well, some loved, and some just acquaintances that I knew that were uh, connected to my life, I say their names, sometimes two or three times a day, certainly in front of before I go out into an audience or before I walk in front Hmm. of a camera. Why do I do it? It connects me. Mm -hmm. It connects me to the unknown. And and what religion is to me is everything that isn't known, mm-hmm. and it's mm-hmm. a comfort. I just, you yeah. know, I just said to Catherine um, about this election um, because I am asking. I, I I some time ago I started saying Hashem instead of God, you know, and I'm asking for help, and sometimes I ask for help, and and then other times I go, I don't know, Catherine. You know, when you see some of the inhumanities that mankind uh, creates and does upon itself, I look at her, I just did it the other day, I don't know if there's anything out there helping us. If the energy of our existence lives on, as Einstein would have said, um, I'm not sure that that collective energy is actually working to help repair the world that's burning and on fire. I hope it is. I'm not going to stop asking for the help, but I'm not certain that it's there, which then makes me say, then you better do all you can right here, right now, to get it as good as you can get it. I understand your question. And then there are these beautiful things, including your interaction with your wife and your children, that are such glorious gifts that you say, this is a blessing. This is a blessing. So now I, I do think about your poor dog who must be sitting there waiting for uh, the biscuit, thinking, "Why couldn't I have been in a secular family?" You know? <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and I do say it pretty fast. <laughs> <laughs> so you you were in you were in public schools in Chicago, mostly in public schools in the 1960s, which was a rough time uh, yeah. in the city. In fact, you were in South Shore High School. That neighborhood was changing very rapidly. Yeah. Jewish families leaving, black families moving in. Yeah. Uh, and there were tensions. You went to first South Shore High School. Yes. Uh, and uh, you left there. And I gathered part of it was because of that, because there were tensions at the high school. I was um, I was in a riot there. Uh, it was the Blackstone Rangers was a big yeah, organization, right? Yeah. And it was South Shore High School. It was fifth period lunch. I'll never forget it. And a and a pop bottle flew across the the lunchroom and it whistled, and it hit the wall. And that was the signal. And I remember looking up from the floor, and the air was completely filled with plates and utensils and trays and forks and knives and and then this girl walked by and she had a fork sticking out of her cheek and and i went down the street and i was brought and i got hit uh and then i was brought over to the principal's office and and uh, you know i I made it out and then i'll never forget looking at the street in front of south shore high school it was a sea it actually was beautiful to look at but a horror in itself it was a sea of broken glass from pop bottles my parents then took me out of uh, uh, South Shore High School and put me into Harvard St. George, um, which uh, was a very interesting uh, experience at that time. And uh, I did not it was a like private it. School, yeah. It was a mm-hmm. private school. 
in the South Side as well. I didn't like it. And then I ended up being in the first graduating class of Kenwood High School, which was fed by the University of Chicago in the local neighborhood. Mm -hmm. It was predominantly African-American. I was one of few white kids in the school. And my dad was in the scrap metal business, which we called the junk business. Now it's right. called recycling. Yes. And um, and most of the neighborhood, because African-Americans were coming in and, and whites and Jews and, um, and Poles and everybody were fleeing for the suburbs. And my dad didn't leave. Uh, now, the excuse that he had that he didn't leave was because he didn't want to travel so far from uh, the business. I don't care what the excuse was. I'm thrilled he didn't leave because I grew up in an African-American community. My my whole singing career, I really give the credit uh, to uh, her. She's a reverend now. At the time, she was just a teacher, the head of the choir at Kenwood High School. Her name was Lena McClinn. And I was like the only white kid, maybe one or two others, in this huge black chorus of gospel singing, you know, heaven that, that I was in. And one day she said to me to sing something, and I sang, and I didn't sing it very loud. You know, I just sang kind of quiet voice. And and I said, I'm sorry, Miss McClinn. I, I know that wasn't very good. She said, child, child, anybody tells you not to use that voice, you come tell them, come see Lena. And so she literally gave me the courage to use the quality of my voice that I liked to sing in, yeah. which was a quiet, high tone. And And had she not said those words that have lived with me forever, I mean, and think about it, to use your voice, for refugees, to use your voice, to for all of us to use our voice with our vote. I mean, it's an incredible thing to say to a young person. You know, you, you said earlier, entertainers uh, and, and what motivates people to become entertainers. You were, a, you and, and maybe it had to do with the fact that you were uh, kind of hyperkinetic, but you were not a very successful student. Uh, and you found your place uh, in theater and on stage. Uh, talk talk about that because it seems seemed like you, it seems like a refu- it was a refuge to you. Yeah, remind me if I get lost. But I, I just remembered something I was saying earlier. When my dad got hurt, uh, you know, he would sit with his head in his hands and he would say to me, "I don't know how you learn those lines. How do you learn those lines?" Well, he had a brain injury, you know, and that's mm-hmm. what happened to him. And he was. And then after he died, I was sent these letters that he wrote before the operation when he was at uh, San Antonio. He was the caretaker of the family. And then it, it became clear to me he was in uh, AZA, uh, uh, an American Jewish youth organization, and he was an orator, an award-winning orator who won many awards. And so this injury uh, sort of robbed, uh, him, and, of that, and, huh? robbed yeah. him of that. And, and so... Um, what ask me the question again? Now I got lost. <laughs> no, the question the, the the question was. It seems like you found refuge on the stage. Right. I I hated school. My sister was very good at it. It bored me. It had nothing that spoke to me other than the choir. And so I'd get A in choir and and D's in everything else. It's amazing that I even uh, was uh, able to graduate high school. And then my mother said to me, "Go over to the Young Men's Jewish Council Youth Center on the South Side of Chicago." They're doing some plays. And I said, that's not for me. You don't know me at all. And uh, then a guy in fifth period lunch, he says to me, um, you know, we're doing these, a big football player. And he says, we're doing these plays and we're short some guys. I said, yeah, it sounds cool. (laughs) I go over there and I fall in love with it. A man named Bob Condor ran the drama program. It was after school. And it happened to be we were rehearsing a play called Carousel by Rodgers and Hammerstein in the same room that I went to nursery school in. So we'd set up the ladder when he talks to God in heaven, uh, you know, about going down back to earth for one more time uh, in the sandbox where I played as a little kid. And he put us all in a semicircle one day, uh, Bob, and all of us from 13 to 17, 18-year-old high school students, he said, what's this play about? And everybody raised their hand. They said, it's about a guy who makes a mistake, about a guy who gets a second chance, about a guy who goes to heaven and comes back, about a guy, about a guy. And, and like a good teacher, he says, I think that's right. I think, you know, I think you're all right. He said, but I also think it's about something else. He said, I think it's about if you love someone, tell them. Well, I'd been in the synagogue since I could remember, and I heard the rabbi give a lot of great sermons. 
My parents were good people. I heard a lot of good stuff around the dinner table, but I never heard something that accessible to me. Mm -hmm. And at that moment, I said to myself, wow, if this thing called theater it has that kind of stuff in it, I'm going to hang out mm -hmm. and check it out. And I did, and I never walked away. You, you mentioned your mom. Uh, from what I read and what I, I see, she was tough. Very tough, yeah. She, uh, she had great strength. My father uh, was the kindest, sweetest person in the world. Um, but she, she was a challenge. I loved her. In, in, uh, I'm going to say some critical things about my mom. So my wife taught me to say the good stuff first. <laughs> and, and, and the good stuff is Bernie Colby, who um, was a powerful lawyer at the synagogue, uh, wrote a series of letters to my parents, all of which I have, begging them not to be irresponsible and allow Mandy to go into show business. This was not good parenting, not a way to lead your child's life for the future. And my parents had the courage to stand up to one of the powerful people in the religious community and say, we're going to let him do what he wants to do. And, and for that alone, they are forgiven for whatever else went down. But my mom, as Catherine has an expression in our family, her, my mom's father was a womanizer and an alcoholic. And, um, and he left his wife, my grandma, and my mother was that left to raise her siblings while my grandma went to work. And my wife says, uh, I don't know if she made it up or heard it somewhere, but this phrase, which is part of our family, hurt people hurt people. And so my mother was unbearably critical. And um, and I don't I, I, I don't know why she was so angry so often. And um, I, I could never it was, no matter what I did, it wasn't good enough. No matter what my father did, it wasn't good enough. No matter that'll turn, what that'll turn in, you that'll turn you into a perfectionist. Yeah. Yeah. And no matter what someone in the community did, it wasn't good. Enough. But you know what? Look. I, I there's a point I do not blame my parents. I believe once you're old enough to walk and chew gum at the same time, your life is your business and mm -hmm. it's in your hands and you fix it or you get or you or you learn to deal with it. I don't believe you can fix it. I just learn you believe you, manage you learn it. to you manage tolerate it. Yeah, yeah. and manage, and manage it. it. Yeah. yeah. Or 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 shut up, you know? <laughs> and yeah. so um you got so, you you pursued this you you pursued theory you went to the university of kansas for a while and then you went to juilliard uh, yeah. which you know, obviously um you had the talent to get in there because it's hard to get into uh juilliard you had some uh you had some uh distinguished classmates including robin williams yeah who you who you've spoken so fondly of uh, tell me yeah. about him well, kids at a drama school can be very cutthroat and competitive. The one that stood out to me is the kindest, most generous one of all that I'd ever met was Robin. We were in different classes, yet he would make it his business to come to different classes and see your project being presented. And he would come up to me and be a cheerleader for every effort that I made in ways that I never forgot. And I would go to the park with him and watch him do his pantomime like he did from San Francisco in Central Park near 72nd Street. And... <clears throat> pardon me and and we would see each other at the at the uh at the japanese restaurant and sit at the bar together and he just was a kind kind soul he reminded me of my dad we all went to dinner once uh with my kids in san francisco when i was doing a concert there and he just talked about video games and stuff with the kids he just loved it and then my son isaac absolutely <laughs> dropped his jaw because uh, Isaac learned, and Isaac, I think, was like 10 years old at the time, and he learned that opening monologue from Good Morning Vietnam that Robin did. Well, it was not to come out of the mouths of children, you know, yeah. what he said. <laughs> but Robin just was a good, wonderful, gifted spirit. And, um, and you never forget that. You know, when someone's kind to you in this world, uh, you just don't forget it. Yeah. And I, I and 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 the other thing, may I say something about Robin? Uh, Please, you know, if you have time, I, hope I you have all the in. time in the world. Okay, that 
We ended up having similar lives, uh, different in many ways. I did not have the gifts that Robin had in terms of his lightning mind and his incredible way of comedy. But, you know, we both were actors at times and we'd both be on the concert stage, he doing comedy and me doing music. And so we'd be on the road for 30 plus years and we would, um, you know, go out to take a bow at the end. And the audience, you know, very thankfully would leap to their feet and scream bravo and the lights go down and you go off stage right. And before the lights even come, you know, come totally out, the sound of the applause is over. You're alone. You go back to the hotel. You get into your suite, which is usually the presidential suite, this massive palatial suite. You're all alone. There's no one there. And uh, you're starting to criticize yourself. You feel you did okay. You didn't do okay. You're lonely, whatever. And you might have a bad or depressing evening. And then you learn over 30-some years. You go to sleep. You take a nap. You have something to eat. You read a book. You take a walk. You do whatever you do, and you get over it. And then Robin one day obviously has, you know, series of difficult moments. And I know that alcohol was a problem of it, and it compromises your ability to use your brain. And he probably did as well as he did because his brain was just unlimited. But still, and then he gets to that rough spot, and he takes the time to arrange a situation where he can take his own life. And I say to myself constantly, how could there not have been enough seconds that ticked by that you could have caught yourself? in those moments that you've relived over and over again for 30-some years, like so many of us have. How did you miss it? How did you miss that window? And it leads me to, I guess, the key lesson of life for me that my teacher taught me, which is if, and this is universal all over the world, if we were taught from the time we could walk to be uncomfortable to be with what makes us un- to be comfortable with our discomfort we would be able to tolerate a major part of life at least half of life which is discomfort and the classic example i give give is if a baby falls and s- scrapes their knee mommy and daddy says let me kiss it and make it go away well kiss it is fine but don't say it should go away Learn to be uncomfortable. It's not the worst thing in the world. And what do people, they try to fix everything. And what do people literally do? The word fix to shoot up is called a fix. You eat it away. You have sex it away. You run it away. You And nation states kill it away. You know, learn to stay with your discomfort, with your neighbors who may not eat the way you eat or dress the way you dress or, or, or cook the way, you know, or walk the way you want or pray the way you like. It's okay. And eventually your brain just gets tired of being uncomfortable because your brain knows better than you that life is short and it needs to move on so that you don't waste the next second. I I think it's an important message. Uh, My dad committed suicide and I talk about suicide a lot and depression here and the need to kind of work. No, no. But the need to um, recognize that this is part of the human condition. And, you know, it's the stigma that keeps people from working these issues through, from getting the help uh, that they need. And um, so, yeah. so it's important to be open uh, about these things. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now back to the show. You've had this extraordinary career, probably a career you couldn't have imagined back in the day at Kenwood High School. Mm-hmm. And I, I, can, I can recite, I can go through and recite it, you know, uh, and I, but I don't have time to recite all of your triumphant uh, productions. But uh, it, it interests me that you, you quit Juilliard and you, you ended up on the stage in 1975. And in your first play, you were with uh, uh, Meryl Streep and John Lithgow, who were also just starting out. Uh, on their uh, careers. And it it prompts me to ask, first of all, what was that experience like? Did you look at them and say, these are extraordinary actors? And are there actors who you've, who've, you've performed with who you, who you were in awe of and said, I, I learned a lot from that. I learned a lot from watching them do their work. Yeah. Um, 
It was extraordinary being in Trelawney of the Wells with uh, Merrill and John and Michael Tucker and the whole rest of the company. Ironically, my wife was offered a part in that play and didn't do it, and someone else did it. And then luckily I met my wife later on. It was the first time my wife saw me. She was in the audience when she saw me make this speech in that play. And, uh, and, and so I got lucky that fate brought me back to that because I didn't meet her in the play. But Meryl and I, um, that was our Broadway debut together, and um, we had a great time. We all sang together and ate together all the time. So the parts that I really remember aren't the play so much as, as the, the dinners and the singing and, and just kids having fun. I, I, with, in terms of actors that uh, really uh, affected me, I've always thought Charles Lawton was my favorite. But it was Al Pacino that uh, I just, I, I got to do a little part because Warren Beatty's a dear friend and I was having a rough time and I said, Warren, let me, I, if, I just need to pay the bills because I've been doing my music for no money and I, I'll serve a drink or anything just so I can get my health insurance and pay my bills. And he gives me the part of 88 Keys and Dick Tracy. And I end up having a scene with uh, Al Pacino Several scenes, actually, I was with him. And and I got to watch Al be free. And by that freedom, I mean, he just sat there. And before the day, he just started talking to himself and saying, listen to me, listen, I got to tell you, don't talk to me like this. And, and the camera hasn't even, and the camera starts moving. And he says, you know, and he starts improvising this whole thing and, and acting like a crazy man. And then he says, let, let, let me tell you, Tracy, I'll tell you, Tracy. And, and, and then, but he, he it was his freedom to just play and not to be on the script. And to be horrible and not to not to worry about being great or perfect. He just was free. And I just went, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. And that moment, uh, I, I always wanted to do that. I did it at times, but what wasn't okay or I was worried that I'd get in trouble if I did it. And when I saw Al do it, I just went, oh, Okay, <laughs> that's good. You, um, there was Yentl and Sunday in the Park with George and the Princess Bride, which is a, a cult favorite. Uh, yeah. Uh, and just a whole range of, of, uh, of great uh, productions. Um, but you're also a great singer and you tour. And I'm wondering, do you think of acting and singing differently? Do you sing more for your, I mean, is acting more of a a job? Is singing more of a release, or is it? Is, is there a difference between your singing and your your acting? I love that you ask that question. There's a huge difference between singing and acting. My wife always says to me, "I love, I love." I, I'll, I'll misquote her if she was here. She'd you know have you know have at me. But she would said something once a long time ago that something when I sing, she thinks I'm really gifted. And, and and I went, and as an actor, just so-so, huh? <laughs> and so she says, well, you're sort of misquoting me, but that's what I think she means. She, <laughs> and what I think she's really saying is I have a freedom when I'm singing. And why I have a freedom, I actually think I've, I've figured it out. We are not singing this interview to each other. Right. We are on a pitch. Your voice is a pitch, and my voice has a pitch. But we're speaking. Now, when when I play, um, when I when we sing... It's one step from reality. So it's like wearing a mask. So you're a bit safe. And if you're safe, you can be freer inside with your emotions. It's why I like playing parts uh, with accents like Inigo, because he doesn't talk, talk the way I talk. So in I have a bit of a mask yeah. in front, mm -hmm. and I'm safer. I'm safer to just be, mm -hmm. be free. And so the other thing that I think is really fascinating is I'm, I enjoy singing so much more than acting because acting is 10 times harder. Why? When you sing, you are working with two other people, three. One is the person, if it's just a piano player, one is playing the piano. But then you're working with the lyricist who gave you those words, like the playwright for the play. So that's the same. But the difference is the composer. And if you know music, or even if you don't, it's written in quarter notes, half notes, eighth notes, full notes, etc. And, and the composer creates a heartbeat. And so that heartbeat is there for you. The conductor may make it beat slower or faster, but 
it gives you the heartbeat. When you're just acting, you have to write that heartbeat yourself. When you're singing, you are given the heartbeat. No matter what you do, if you're on those notes, whether you do them faster or slower, a heartbeat has been given to you. And that's why it's easier. You are a legend uh, in the Jewish community because you've kept, uh, you've kept Yiddish alive uh, with your music. Um, tell me I, have Joe Papp, I have Joe Papp to thank for that. From the public theater in yes. New York. Tell me about that. What did he say? Well, Joe signed the ketub at our wedding. He was like my father. And our real connection wasn't even the theater as much as our Jewishness and what we came from. His name was Paparovsky, which means his family sold cigarettes, you know, or tobacco. <laughs> and um, and he asked me to do a benefit one day for the Evo Foundation at the Schubert Theater where a chorus line was playing. I said, Joe, I don't know any Yiddish songs. He said, well, it's about time you learn one. And he sends one over to me, and Joe had a healthy ego, so what's the song called? Yossel Yossel, uh, which means Joseph <laughs> Joe, Joseph. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah, my father's I name say, was Joe. Yeah, yeah go on, your father's name? It was Joe, so Yossel yeah, was what Yossel his was mother his called him. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And Joe came over for Shabbos dinner on occasion, and um, and I had recorded this song, Yossel Yossel, uh, w- w- with uh, Don Byron, a great uh, j- um, a jazz, uh, um, he actually played klezmer uh, on the clarinet uh, like Mickey Katz used to. And um, I wanted him to hear the recording because I was going to put it on an album. And he looked at me after the recording, we were sitting on the, in the kitchen wall, and he looked at me and he said, this is your job. You need to do this music and learn it and do it. That's your job. And I knew what he meant, that at this particular moment in time, after a language was almost destroyed by the Holocaust, and all the people working hard to keep it alive, I happened to be one of the people in line that could sing, that had an interest, and it was my job to learn it and move it forward. Mm-hmm. And so I did and worked with wonderful, gifted people, and and it's a, it's probably one of the most extraordinary experiences of my professional life. Let's talk about Homeland. Um, sure. You were sent the script. When you saw the script, why did that appeal to you? Was it, was it a gig, or did, was there something about it particularly that, that struck you? Well, I, uh, I read it, and I certainly knew the pedigree of uh, Claire Danes, and the pedigree of the writers uh, was at the highest level in the field. And I gave it to the two people I trust the most, my wife and um, my dear friend, Vicki Traub. And uh, I said, I need to know what you think of this, because the television is like a, an onion peel, a slow onion peel, meaning what you get in the pilot, you're, you have no idea what will be in the next script and the next script and the next script. They're just, everybody's searching, no matter how much they've walked around with it, the writers in the writer's room and, and, and mused about it. They're waiting for the accident. So you and I are the actors in the scene, and there's a certain chemistry that's undeniable. So they're going to go with that and throw out this other 20, year, 20 <laughs> weeks of meetings that they've had because they just feel it. And, and, and so I could tell when I wrote it that I thought this had a real possibility uh, in terms of that slow onion peel and in terms of the quality of the people. And uh, and the one thing I said to Alex Gonza, I said, listen, I've been in this game for a little bit. I won't do it if you're not going to be with it. Meaning a lot of these TV guys, they start it and then they move on to the next project and they hand it over to somebody else. And and you you relate. It's like a marriage. You fall in love with that person. And it's the osmosis that takes place between the two of you. And if you're going to take off then I'm living with another woman. You know what I mean? And uh, <laughs> that doesn't work out too good. And yeah, you so, signed, you signed, I know you signed uh, in the, for a year. You ended up doing eight. Yeah. You signed up for a year at the yeah. beginning. Yeah, you you're wanna, not, I guess to see how the onion peeled. I yeah, guess, that's huh? right. You're all, in TV, the rule is, I think it's seven years now, but no less than six. And I said, I won't do it. So don't pay me that much and just give me one year. And if we're all happy, then we'll move on. And I was happy uh, pretty fast. Uh, it was one of those experiences that I we were drop-jawed. As, 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 well, we did the pilot, and I knew that was good. And then they picked it up. And then we beat, really, when, it, when the nickel dropped is when we started getting the scripts. And, and you couldn't believe what was on each page as you turned it. 
You just couldn't believe what was happening. And then you were certain that it was too good for television. And it would it would tank because it was too good. <coughs> Pardon me. And um, uh, so you were certain it was too good for television. And, um, and then that day came out when we had about five or six in the can, and they gave it to the press, and it was like meeting that girl that you fall in love with, and you bring her home to meet the family, and they feel about her the way you did, and, and <laughs> yeah. then you're okay. Tell me about Saul Berenson, the role you played for eight years. You know, uh, he, he was uh, such a powerful character and so self-contained. As, by <laughs> the way, you know, I've had my interactions with people in the intelligence community having been in the government. There are a lot of characters like that. Yes, there because are. Because the job requires you to be uh, self-contained. You're a buoyant personality. Right. Uh, tell me how you got into his head. Well, my buoyancy was left on the cutting room floor <laughs> because <laughs> I put it in a lot of scenes and Alex Gonza and Leslie Lincoln-Gladder, our head director, and our other wonderful directors would always pull Mandy back, pull him back, pull him back. Or if I didn't, they'd put it in the garbage. You know? <laughs> and they, and um, so Alex wrote a very interesting part, and I knew the minute I had read it. At the time, right before, while I was doing the pilot, actually, I was doing a play called Compulsion by Rinna Groff, directed by Oscar Eustace. We were doing it at the Yale Repertory Theater, Berkeley Rep, and then the Public Theater in New York. At this point, we'd done the other two, and we were at the Public. I was playing, uh, I forget the writer's name now, but he wrote the book Compulsion, and, and it was this real person that attached himself to being the caretaker of Anne Frank's diary, and um, wanted the rights to write the play and got in a huge fight with uh, all the people and powerful people and, and just destroyed his life and everyone else's around him. But the core of that character's existence was he was the care, he believed he was the caretaker for this gifted soul named Anne Frank and what her gifts offered us in terms of human condition and an optimism toward that condition in, the, in light of the worst conditions surrounding her. So like the relationship between Saul and Carrie. Exactly. Madison. And so yeah. I saw that and I went, this is the same character that I'm in the middle of playing in the play, but without the insanity. So he's not crazy like the guy I am in the play. This guy is the exact same soul of wanting to protect and caretake her and preserve her because he believes she is a caretaker for humanity, but he's not nuts. Mm -hmm. So, and, and I just had it from the get-go that the minute I read it, I knew that my job, both as Saul and as Mandy to Claire, was to make her feel comfortable and safe, and that there would be nothing that would come out of my being that would have anything to do with anything negative, and only to do with making sure she felt comfortable and safe with me always to the last second. Yeah, in fact, she had her emotional struggles, and you were the ballast. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, for her, you know, I saw her uh, duck into Vice President Biden's office when I was in the White House. I think must have been at the beginning of the whole deal. And you guys would come; you would have retreats. Uh, I don't know whether you were included in that, uh, but retreats with people from the intelligence community to just get a sense of what current issues were and what their concerns were. Right. And, and so on. Um, we missed we miss the first one, but then Claire and I were at all of them, all the subsequent ones every year. They were for five days, uh, three to five days uh, in Washington, D.C. with the who's who of the intelligence community. And I mean the who's who, both present and past, and um, and the Pulitzer Prize writing community, those who keep in watch and keep everyone supposed to be in line mm -hmm. uh, and uh, the voice of the public, you know, and um so a number of these people uh, became my friends, um, and uh, you know, and I'm I'm in touch with them to this day. Uh, they they their patriotism touched me in the deepest way. They literally have given their lives. They're the first people to say that when they go to schools to teach to recruit, that they admit the faults that aren't admitted publicly. Uh, uh, and the mistakes that were made over time in history with the CIA, the ones that they're allowed to talk about that have become public, you know, disgraces or shame, mar marks of shame. But, you know, it's uh, 
I, I admire people that can um, admit their mistakes in life. And I admire people that are patriots, that love this country to, to the point of literally giving their life. Literally, yes. When you, uh, when you watch the uh, interaction between the president, this president, and the, and the IC and the intelligence community during the last four years, did you see it through the prism of those relationships and that experience? It must have en enraged you. I totally did. Remind me to tell you the one story on the set if I get a little lost, but it broke my heart watching this president attack the t intelligence community that was formed a a after uh, World War II to bring information to the president uh, anywhere from anywhere in the world that the president could not receive by any other means. That's the purpose of the CIA. And to see him degrade the intelligence community the way he did for his own negative purposes and ego and... Uh, self-aggrandizement and, and, and literally um, his paranoia and his, he's a complicated, um, very disturbed individual. It's not just ego, it's a, it's a racist nature and tendency. It's a, it, 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 and first of all, let, let me just say one thing to just get it, because it, it's the parentheses around it all. He's a liar. And you, 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 once you lie to me, we're done. Mm. We're just done. You know, to say nothing about something like COVID-19 takes over 220,000 lives and we're still counting. It's over. If you think I can't handle the truth, I've been through that with my father. Don't ever do it to me again. And so um, I was at a briefing in end of January. No, that was January 21st when he was inaugurated in 2016. So it was early February. We had our spy camp for that season of Homeland. Spy camp, I love that. Yeah, we call it spy right. camp. And so... Did you get t-shirts? Uh, yeah, no, but we... we <laughs> I'll just say, one, one day after spy camp, uh, and, and these are 10, 12-hour days, where we're doing three-hour meetings minimum with each person that comes through the door. We're having lunches for hours with them. It is it is so much intake, as I'm sure you know from Washington, that yes. you're, you're spinning at yes. the end of, of a moment, let alone yes. a day. Yes. And uh, and and we're walking back to the hotel, Claire and myself, and she just looked at me almost like shell shocked and said, that was more than I needed to know, mm -hmm. you know, and it, and, and, and it was really shook, shook the earth under us. But it was it was spy camp uh, early February 2016, right after the inauguration. And a lot of ugly things had already been signed, put into law, rhetoric spoken, etc. You know, banning Muslims, uh, you know, just horrible, horrible things that were being done. Um, and and I was listening to someone uh and we met many of these people in this position, but this was a person uh, who was in charge of all 17 intelligence agencies for a number of years, had sat in the Oval Office like yourself with uh, a number of presidents and went through that exercise every day. And I watched, you see, I'm not the kind of person, I don't want to go on, on uh, I don't want to go on like, uh, I, 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 I can't have a conversation with you and, and quote numbers and facts and statistics. Mm -hmm. That's not how I work. I'm a heartbeat guy. So mm -hmm. I come into a room with you, or I'm playing a character, I'm only looking for your emotional state. I'm only asking you questions about what happens when you lose a life, or right. somebody that you're taking right. care of. I want to know, do you pray? How do you walk? Where do you cry? Who do yeah. you cry with? Yeah. What yeah. do you do? How do you live life like the yeah. rest of us live it? All the other stuff are just little, you know, that's stuff for the writers to do and, and have come out of my mouth. I just need to know how your heart beats. And that's my job. So I'm watching this guy. I'm watching him for three hours. We're asking him, as we ask everybody, what keeps you up at night? What's your worst nightmares? That's what we're looking for, you know, to spin the season around. Here's the things we're thinking about. What can you say about it? And I'm looking at this guy, and he's answering these questions, and he has a sense of calm about him. I can tell he's not anxiety-ridden. I've been with this same guy at other moments when literally you would say someone's name like Snowden and he has to get up out of his chair and he has to calm down. He's got to walk around for a minute and, and they go nuts. I've been there. And so I'm watching him and he's not nervous. He's not hysterical. He's calm for three hours about the most intense questions we could and cop topics you could talk about. It's six months later now. We jump cut six months later. He comes to visit us on the set while we're shooting some scene. 
And he's a friend of mine now. We've had dinners a number of times, and we've, mm-hmm. we've gone on hikes, and I really, you know, I, I love this guy. And I said to my friend, let me ask you something. You remember in February we were the, we have spy camp, and I was at, we were asking these questions. You had a calm, and I you made me calm. You made me not worry that this was going to be a dangerous time. Um, and so that's what I got then. And, and, and then more and more horrible things have been happening. Do you still feel that way? And he took a pause and he said, I have to tell you something. I've been in that office, like I said, with all these different presidents, you know, a good part of my life. And I have never not seen the transition from the candidate to the man sitting in that office take place. The weight of not just the country, but the world setting on his shoulders or her shoulders and the effect of that on that human being and the transformation of that human being. Yes. And I wasn't nervous in February, but now that I am here six months later and I haven't seen that effect take place in this human being, I am terrified. Uh, that was in 2017, obviously. Yes, 2017. Right. Yeah, yeah. February 2017. And that stayed with me. And, and, and we walked and we talked about everything he said. But not seeing the weight of that office have an effect on that human being gave me pause, yeah. he said. I think there are a lot of people uh, who have been in Washington, been in public service, who have made the same, same observation. Yeah. Mandy Patinkin, it is great to be with you. Thank you for uh, for all your energetic efforts to uh, and your families to get people uh, to vote, and all the good works that you do, and for all the pleasure that you've given people uh, with your great gifts. It's uh, it's it's an honor to be with you. Thank you, David. Maybe we'll go to a White Sox game one day. I would love it. I would okay. love it. They're getting better. They're getting okay. better. So <laughs> okay, you take we'll care. See you. And take keep care. up your great work as well. I'm such a fan of yours. Thank you so much. Thank you, my friend. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of the show is Emily Stanitz. The show is also produced by Miriam Annenberg, Jeff Fox, Hannah McDonald, and Allison Siegel. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Courtney Coop, Ashley Lusk, and Megan Marcus. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.